Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Before we get into the six movies we watched this week, just want to give you a heads up that we're dropping a daddy deep dive uh, on the following Sunday after this episode drops. We sat down with our good buddies, Jake and Danielle, and we talked about one of their favorite movies, Face Off which we regard as a pretty silly movie, but it was really fun to sit down with them and talk about why it's actually an important movie to them and have a laughter-filled, insightful conversation about a movie you wouldn't think you could have an insightful conversation about. That's the beauty of our show. So we're going to be dropping that on Sunday. It's going to be super fun. Very excited to share it with you all. Let's get into the movies we watched this week. Like I said, we watched six Smackaroonies and uh, Kylie, why don't you introduce the first one? So we went to the theater a lot this week, um, which good thing because our favorite place in the world, Metro Cinema, is hosting uh, Edmonton's Fringe Festival. They're one of the bring your own venue venues. And so they won't be playing any movies for almost two weeks. So we had our fill. Yeah, we went there, I think, six days in a row. Sometimes for more than one movie. Yeah. So the first one that we saw was the film Rope. It is from 1948, so it's old ass. Um, It is a crime drama history film directed by Alfred Hitchcock, written by Hume Cronin, Patrick Hamilton, and Arthur Laurent. Uh, I think one of them wrote the original play. Didn't look into that enough. Apologies. Yeah. It stars James Stewart as Rupert Cottle, John Dahl as Brandon, Farley Granger as Philip, Edith Evanson as Mrs. Wilson, and Joan Chandler as Janet. Synopsis. Two men attempt to prove they committed the perfect crime by hosting a dinner party after strangling their former classmate to death. What did you think of Rope? Uh, I mean, we haven't watched a lot of Hitchcock. I was just thinking about this. We've seen Psycho, and we've seen Rear Window, We've seen this, and I think you've seen one more than I have. Well, we've seen the birds. Right, we've seen the birds, and you've seen... Uh, I, I show Dial M for Murder in one of my classes because I teach the original play. Right. So uh, I've seen it a lot. <laughs> right. Yeah. I have not seen that, but uh, we're working our way through it, and this was shown on his birthday, I believe. Yeah, they were playing this and To Catch a Thief, 
but we saw a trailer for To Catch a Thief and thought it looked dull. Hot shoe, um, hot shoe. Which, like, I definitely would watch it, but they were at 4 p, like, like 3 p.m. and 7 p.m., 4 p.m. and 7 p.m., and I was like, that's a... I'm more of a, like, double matinee or double evening show person, but, like, combining a matinee with an evening show makes for a long day. Yeah, and it makes the dinner time getting complicated. Yeah, we live pretty far away from that theater, so... Yeah. Um... So, but this is the second Hitchcock film that we've covered on the show. First being Psycho. I thought that Rope was compelling as hell. It felt like some real solid filmmaking. I mean, I've I've talked about this many a time on the show, but I'm a big sucker for long takes, and the more long takes and long tracking shots you can do in a movie the more compelled I am and the more that I lean in and the stuff that Hitchcock was doing in this movie, which again was made in 1948. It's the same shit that they're doing in Birdman in 1917. I think it's really cool that you could trace those back to this film. And probably even before this, I, I don't even know. I don't even think necessarily this is the first time this has ever been done in film. But it'd be a lot harder to do in 1948 than it is now. Like now they can hide the cuts better. I was reading that because they were doing these long takes, they basically would do anything they could to not have to redo it. Um, And so there was an instant where the dolly ran over one of the cameraman's feet and Mm. he was like in a lot of pain and someone just gagged him and dragged him off set so they could keep going. Gagged him and dragged him. (laughs) (laughs) That's That's what IMDb Trivia says. And another instance where um, one of the actors set down a glass um, on the edge of a table and it started to fall. And if it were to fall and crash, that would be bad. So like a stage hand quickly rushed in to grab it so it didn't hit the ground out of shot so that they could just keep going. Because, I mean, I'm sure long takes are difficult now too, um, but. There's more tip, more tricks you could pull out to cover up something like that. Yeah, I think so. Um, They also had like different limitations then. So I was reading that. So the entire film, and it's not a long film. It's like 90 some minutes. The entire film is 10 takes. Uh, The shortest is four and a half minutes and the longest is 10 minutes. And the reason the longest is 10 minutes is that is the maximum amount of film that a projector reel could hold at the time. Yeah. So there's limitations there that we don't have now. If you're doing digital, you could literally... just run forever and so i think it's interesting to think about the craft of it and how you're right these films are all in like a lineage together but the technology is very different and um, this is based on a play and one of the things that hitchcock said was that like doing these long takes evokes like the feeling that a play would right that you're like watching this happen in front of you and it's like live even though it isn't so Mm -hmm. and the thing while long takes are really cool, the thing that makes them work are compelling performances, which I think Hitchcock got from all of his performers in this. I mean, Brandon and Philip are, are two. I would, I was going to say heroes. They ain't heroes. No, they're not heroes. There are leads in this that we're following after, as the synopsis says, after they strangle somebody and then just this, it starts to show the divide between Brandon and Philip. And then even though they both partook in this crime, how each of them are dealing with the fallout from the crime and where their mindsets are and how they want to go about what the next steps are. And I think that 
that's done really well. And then as the party starts to happen and more characters are coming in, it feels like a less fun clue. <laughs> it's definitely less fun. Um, but still, you kind of have this gaggle of wacky people showing up and, and with eclectic personalities and some very upsetting and disturbing personalities and takes on the world. It explores some really great things. That's interesting because this um, movie and the and the play on which it's based is based on a real crime. Mm. Um, that I've, that it's interesting considering like another film that we watched this week that is a biopic proper, whereas this is just inspired by you're not quite as much of a true crime head as I am, but do you know about the Leopold and Loeb case? No. So they were two college boys men who believed based on something Nietzsche Nietzsche niece niece <laughs> uh, that philosopher guy they talk about in little miss sunshine um something he said about like the superior man and how the superior man is exempt from crime because he is superior mm. um and they decided they they started with like vandalism and i think they did some like arson and shit to be like we are exempt from crime um and it culminated in them deciding they wanted to murder someone because they were exempt from crime and they kidnapped and killed a 14-year-old boy. Jesus. Um, they were caught pretty quickly. They went to jail. This is in the 1920s. Oh, shit. I think. Um, I mean, considering this movie's made in 1948, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the circumstances are definitely different. Like, they weren't hosting a party with the body there. Mm. But the impetus for why they committed the crime is there. And I find it interesting how this is like inspired by that, the reasoning behind the crime, but not necessarily the crime proper. Right. That's really nasty. And and what happens in this film is really nasty too. And there are even, you know, the murder aside, there are conversations in this film that touch on this stuff. Nietzsche is was talking about but there's conversations about class and how it pertains to the value of life and just some of the shit that they talk about and some of the things that people say in this scarily feel relevant to some of the stuff that we see today some mm-hmm. of the conversations on social media and some of the really gross shit that exists on the internet and in society and it, whenever that happens when you can watch a film from 1948 and see parallels to shit happening in 2023 it's very upsetting. I want to talk a little bit quickly. So I think we both liked this movie. It's mm-hmm. complicated because I think Alfred Hitchcock was pretty pee pee poo poo. Like he didn't yeah. treat um, particularly his women actors well. Um, I think he's in that long lineage, which continues today of so-called auteur male directors feeling like they can get away with being really awful people. Um, and he has had, uh, I think it's Tippi Hedren, accused him of sexual assault. So he's not a great man. And I, like this movie, people talk about it a lot. You even mentioned it of like this kind of queer undertone to it. And yeah, it's fun to talk about it. But also there seems to be something kind of troubling when I look at this and I look at Psycho with Alfred Hitchcock casting actors or casting actors who are closeted in real life or in the case of this um, John Dahl 
his I think his daughter still to this day says no he didn't have relationships with men but people feel he did have relationships with men biographers have said that he did and then Farley Granger who plays Philip was like I think vocally bisexual like he had relationships with men and women and he said Mm. that he enjoyed both um but then of course looking at Anthony Perkins how he's casting these closeted or assumed to be queer men and then casting them as killers like there's something fucked up about that that's a really good point. So, sorry. I so mean, like, how cool was John Dahl queer? We don't know. Oh, okay. But people think he was. Okay. And he wanted Cary Grant for the role of James Stewart. And I believe he was queer. Yeah. So it's one of those tricky things for like actors of a certain time of when you look up Cary Grant and James Dahl, it says like long assumed to be gay. But there's no confirmation of it or like certain people have said they had relationships with them, but there's no they didn't say or like their family is continuing to to deny it. And so, yeah, I guess originally Hitchcock also wanted like wanted Cary Grant in the in the role that James Stewart plays, because in the original play that this is based on, it is um, like up front that Brandon and Philip are in a relationship mm-hmm. and also that. Randall had a relationship with one of his students at one point, and so he is also gay. And so, I th- like considering the fact that Hitchcock wanted to cast these three actors who people are making assumptions about their sexuality in these roles that are kind of overtly homoerotic, but not literally so. And it's all about killing. <laughs> Like, I mean, it, yes, it's funny from a queer perspective, which we're a part of, to say, like, yeah, just kiss already. But how much do we want two gay men who killed somebody to kiss over the dead body? But, like, you're right. It is complicated because, yes, Hitchcock may or may not have had these motives of of casting these men in these roles. Well, he definitely did in the case of Anthony per- Perkins. He talked about it. But at the same time, like, these men can say no to these roles. Um, so like why, like what drew them to that? Like what made them want to, um, I guess what I'm talking about more is not people's freedom to take or not take a role, but the fact that then when we consider, at least in these two films that we've seen and we haven't seen all of Hitchcock's films, so I don't know if this is something that is in other ones, that the trend of having characters who are implied to be gay or trans, um, or there's like these homoerotic tones undertones in it and they are deviant or they are criminals or they are murderers as part of a long line of troubling depictions of queer folks as harmful and dangerous yeah that's what i'm saying and and that i think it's important to address that when we're also being like teehee how fun they should kiss right because like they killed somebody and there's a dead body in the room right yeah Eh, that's fair and then i think that that is made more insidious by the intentional casting of queer actors. Although, I mean, maybe Hitchcock gets points for actually casting people in the identities of the, you know, because that's a real problem, i.e. Bradley Cooper's new project. Yikes. Yikes, indeed. Before you get too excited about seeing the new Maestro movie, maybe look into some of the stuff about it. Yeah, that is a big no for us. Um, Speaking of gay... 
I had such a crush on both Philip and Janet. I love those memes that are like, you know, you're bisexual when, and then it's like a picture of Steve and a picture of, um, uh, what's Robin? Robin. Yeah. And you're like, huh? Yeah. So I could do that with Philip and Janet. Like 1948 and bisexual panic is real. (laughs) Janet was the MVP of this whole movie. Yeah. And she was so, I really liked her. Like I really liked the acting and she is beautiful and she really wasn't in very many things. I went and looked and Hmm. I mean, it's possible she was doing more theater work, but especially in the forties and fifties, like theater is think perhaps more prominent than it is now. I don't know. I'm just speaking out of, out of my butt here, but. (laughs) No, I think you're right, though. Like, I, I think that probably in the 40s, there was more stage play stuff going on than highly regarded film. I don't know. I'm also speaking in my book. Yeah, you're just Let's like, move. I agree with you. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, no, she was she was great. Like, such a highlight. And I wish there was more of her in it. I understand why there wasn't, but I wish there was because I like when there's characters I like on screen. Well, fun story. I haven't looked this up on YouTube, but I bet it's there. Do you remember what the name of the guy they murdered is? David? I think it's David too. So the trailer for this film was actually an additional scene with Janet and David like together. Okay. So when I was doing my notes, when you're on IMDb, it just auto plays the trailer and I didn't watch it with sound, but it was like the two of them in the park. So it's like pre-movie, which is kind of cool. And then I loved how... The credits are all the actor or the like roles in relation to David. David so yeah. like David's girlfriend, David's dad, David's murderers. <laughs> well, I think it's David's friends, but that's actually like such a cool use of trailers. Oh yeah. I mean, Alfred Hitchcock was not a guy I think I wanted to be buds with, but um, smart. He was doing guy. some really interesting stuff in film and, uh, the, my really my first introduction to Alfred Hitchcock and I think I talked about this when we watched Psycho was I watched a lot of Alfred Hitchcock presents with my dad and he had them on um, DVD I think mm-hmm. uh, and just these compelling like contained stories and you see that here too right like this like closed circuit type film where we're in the apartment the whole time and yeah it was really compelling like I found for a movie set in 1948 that's in one location that does have the feel of a play. I was really compelled from start to finish. Yeah. No, that's, uh, I totally agree. I am so hung up on this, including a sort additional of, scene. Like a pro, it's almost like a prologue for the beginning of the movie that's not in the movie. I think that's so cool and it would be so great to, to see that happen. I mean, I feel like a bit of, I mean, it's even more accessible now because the only way to see trailers in the past was to go to the movies and see them before movie and before the movie you were going to go see. But now it's just so readily available online. Like when they drop that deleted scene from the Batman and it actually has a big role in what the Batman universe is that they're setting up now. But yeah, I'm I'm all here for that because all trailers good trailers are very few and far between. So yeah. and like cool marketing stuff that isn't the same as every other marketing thing. Yeah. The rope trailer is very different than the blue beetle trailer. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> very cool. I like that a lot. Um, yeah, this was, this was great to see in the theater. Uh, I'm happy that I saw it. I don't think it's a revisit as often as I would revisit 
Psycho. Because I quite liked Psycho. But this was well done. Real cool. Despite the pee-pee-poo-poo of it all. What, uh, how did Rope make you feel? Compelled as heck. How did it make you feel? It made me feel invested in this tense classic. All right. For the next film, we went back to Metro and we saw the 1986 drama, The Sacrifice. It was written and directed by Andre Tarkovsky. It stars Erlen Josephson as Alexander, Susan Fleetwood as Adelaide, Alan Edwall as Otto, uh, Sven Wolter as Victor and Valerie Mayreze as Julia. Synopsis. At the dawn of World War III, a man searches for a way to restore peace to the world and finds he must give something in return. This is our second Tarkovsky. What do you think of it? Um, so Tarkovsky's so tricky because yeah. I feel like there's this people talk about it a lot with newer films and newer blockbusters. I feel like there's a lot of this talk around Barbie and Oppenheimer with like I saw it a little bit after other people had seen it. It was so hyped for me that I didn't like it as much as I thought I was going to. Mm. And I feel like there's a little bit of that with me for Tarkovsky because he's regarded as like one of the best filmmakers of all time. And when we started, well, when we watched Persona, which we cover in episode four, good episode if you haven't listened to it before, mm. um, I was totally blown away and I was like, whoa, Bergman is amazing. But then we watched The Seventh Seal and I was like, eh. And then we watched Autumn Sonata, Sonata and I was like, yes. <laughs> um, so for the two Tarkovsky films we've seen, Mirror and this, A, I'm really thankful to have seen them in the theater. Mm-hmm. Both of the ones that we saw had excellent audiences that were just totally locked in, which is great because I think seeing a Tarkovsky film with a restless audience or with a couple bad seeds would be really difficult. And it was like um, a decently full house too. I'm going to say there was over 100 people. Yeah. for Was it a Monday we saw this too? Like really cool to see that many people come out. When I watch these films, I find them gorgeous, like artistically gorgeous, but they haven't quite connected with me in the way that I know they've connected with others. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm very much in the same boat. When we went and saw a series that was curated by Thomas Wishloff at Metro, and a part of that was Tarkovsky's Mirror, he said some really thoughtful things about the film's not not necessarily just Tarkovsky's films, but just films in general opening themselves up to you at different times in your life. And I I kind of put that onto the two films that I've seen of Tarkovsky's at this point, is that when The Sacrifice ended, I was just filled with this feeling of it was beautiful, it was well-crafted, I enjoyed watching it, but the emotional core and it just hitting me on another level didn't happen and i'm attributing that to the fact that tarkovsky and his approach to films just haven't opened themselves up to me yet and maybe that'll happen in a year maybe it'll happen in a decade who knows because like this was a staff pick it was picked by tim who is one of the people that work at metro and he came up and gave a little preamble before the movie and just said that he saw this for the first time at Metro Cinema way before it was in the location it is in now and just said it blew him away. Like He said he left it feeling shattered. Yeah, like it emotionally wrecked him and he went on to say that this is his favorite movie of all time or maybe his favorite movie of all time. 
And I think that's so great that it opened itself up to him that way. But yeah, I, I so badly want to be a part of that club. <laughs> that's like the trickiest thing of the whole thing is I, I love it when films are able to move me and just stir me emotionally so effectively, but I don't get to be a part of that club with Tarkovsky yet. And that makes me sad. And I don't, yeah, I really don't think that means that we never will. It either could happen with either of the films we've already seen on a subsequent watch or it could happen with a different film of his. But I would relate this to the way some of the folks that are in our lives have responded to seeing After Sun where they're like, yeah, it was a good movie, but it didn't connect with me the way it connected with you. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's what I think is so wonderful about film that you can appreciate appreciate it from different ways because while I didn't come away from The Sacrifice feeling shattered or feeling like I had seen my new favorite film of all time. I did enjoy watching it. I did think it was beautiful. I liked it more than I liked Mirror. I agree. And I think part of that, I was reading about it um, and Tarkovsky made this film as his like Bergman, like gratitude. This was like him being like, I love Bergman. I love his films. And a lot of the cast and crew were people who had worked on films with Bergman. Mm. So I do see some of that persona stuff in here. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I found that really compelling. Uh, it's maybe just the themes that didn't totally connect with me. Yeah. Quite the same way. Yeah. And like this is, this is a film that demands patience of its audience because it is almost two and a half hours, I think. And it's dialogue driven. Yeah. And while the visuals are gorgeous and it does have a lot of wonders, which I love there, there is the opportunity for an impatient audience or somebody who's just not in the, in the best headspace to take on a dialogue heavy movie to not be able to take in even as much as we took in from the movie. I agree with you though. I think, I think visually and tonally this movie gave me more than Mir gave me. I think there's also a lot going on in this film that I read afterwards that we were unable to appreciate because we have only seen mirror in this. So the sacrifice is Tarkovsky's final film. When he made this, he actually knew that he was dying of cancer mm. and he was shown the final cut for this film while he was on his deathbed. Mm. So there's a lot going on in this for him as a artist and filmmaker and human being. Um, and when he made this film, a lot of people talk about it as like the culmination of all of his films and that there's, like homages and connections to his whole filmography that like we just don't know because we haven't seen them. Um, and that the final shot of this film mirrors the opening shot of his first film, which we've never seen. So there's a lot going on in there. I think both from a, if you're a fan of Tarkovsky, this like bringing together of everything he's done. And then also thinking about it, which I didn't know at the time in the context of what's happening in his life. Um, and he dedicates the film to his son, mm. who's his only child. And um, after we watched this, I read the whole Wikipedia page for Tarkovsky, like the human being. And he kind of abandoned his wife and son for a long time because he couldn't make the films he wanted to make in Russia. And he kind of just like went off to other parts in the world, but they couldn't get out of Russia like legally and so people have talked about this film as like him reckoning with that, like with the choices he's made around. Like, so Tarkovsky was very 
in my reading about him was very um, vocal about how he believed film should come from a personal place. Mm. And so you can then read his films through his kind of personal history. Um, like, so he said, I find this really beautiful and this is why I really do want to connect with his work so much. He said about film, quote, all art of course is intellectual, but for me, all the arts and cinema even more so must above all be emotional and act upon the heart. Mm-hmm. Like this was his goal with cinema. That's like our jam. Totally our jam. So I find that, yeah, really, really interesting. And then he said a couple of things about this film that I really like. So in speaking about the sacrifice, he said, quote, the metaphor of the film is consistent with the action and needs no elucidation. I knew that the film would be open to a number of interpretations, but I deliberately avoided pointing to specific conclusions because I considered that those were for the audience to reach independently. Indeed, it was my intention to invite different responses. I naturally have my own views on the film, but I think that the person who sees it will be able to interpret the events it portrays and make up his own mind about the various threads that run through it and about its contradictions. Very David Lynch. I was going to say, I feel like that's the mark of a a good filmmaker who appreciates their audience and respects their audience and their intelligence when they watch their films. Yeah, to say there's not just one reading of this. Yeah. Do you think we messed up by watching his last film second and not going back through? No, I think we, I think getting to see it in the theater is really cool. And I think in fact, maybe watching that film again, like I think there is something tricky about a film that is both so wonderfully visually based. Like there are some scenes and some shots in this film that blew me away, Mm -hmm. um, but also is so dialogue heavy and yet it isn't in your language that it can be, at least for me, hard to both focus on the heft of the dialogue while appreciating the beauty of the visuals. Mm. And so seeing a film like that a second time when you kind of already know what's going on might allow you to refocus your energy on whatever you didn't last time. Mm. Um, And so, I no, I don't think so. I think we'll revisit it. Maybe we'll revisit it after we've seen all of the others and that'll be the case. Yeah, retroactively, it could hit a new emotional core if if we visit more of his previous work. Potentially and potentially not. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. How did it make you feel? Uh, it made me feel moved by the imagery. Yeah. How did it make you feel? Just that deep desire to connect with it one day. So we went to another movie right after The Sacrifice because this is what Metro was playing, which made for the oddest double feature. Mm-hmm. Like if I was curating my own double feature night, this would not be what I picked. <laughs> But we went to the 1980 horror sci-fi thriller Alligator. <laughs> In other words, Jaws ripoff, or people call it Urban Jaws, or <laughs> Urban Jaws, Jaws with alligators, whatever. Um, it was directed by Louis Teague, who directed Cujo, mm. uh, and written by John Salis and Frank Ray Pirelli. There are so many characters who are like, in this for two seconds, so I'm only going to name the leads. Mm-hmm. It stars Robert Forster as David Madison and Robin Riker as Marissa Kendall. Synopsis for this is a pet baby alligator is flushed down a toilet and survives in the city sewers. Twelve years later, it grows to an enormous size thanks to a diet of discarded laboratory dogs injected with growth hormones. Now humans have entered the menu. Oh, (laughs) hell yeah. What a synopsis. Uh, What did you think of Alligator? I mean, yeah, like you said, a hell of a double feature. Um, Tarkovsky, then Alligator. I was actually looking forward to this. 
because I was just looking for a silly, fun, B-horror movie good time. And I think that I have, well, I know that I have a soft spot for creature features that are focused on actual animals that have gone mad. So, I mean, my favorite movie of all time is Jaws, which is kind of an example of that. But growing up, I would go and rent a bunch of these kinds of movies, these these crappy B-horror movies. Like I remember watching Cujo, watching The Lake Placids, a movie called Bats. <laughs> I want to watch The Meg. <laughs> like Ooh, I do not. Like I know objectively these are not good movies, with the exception of Jaws. Um, Which is not bad. I like to revisit that too because I remember the car stuff fucking me up. So I'd like to watch that again. But I, I liked that stuff growing up. And maybe it was because I was introduced to Jaws at such a young age that that was just my jam. Yeah, I was excited for this. And the trailer had me hyped for this. We saw the trailer a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. But I know that creature feature stuff isn't necessarily your bag. It's not your go-to. No, something I've been thinking a lot about lately is, you know, how each person as an individual has genres that they really like. So for some people, it might be romance. Um, for some people, it might be mystery. For me, it's horror. But even within horror, it's more slasher or paranormal. Mm-hmm. Um, for other people, it's action. And I feel like for most of us, when there's a genre we really like, we'll watch anything in it and we'll enjoy it even when it's not that good unless it's like disgustingly or offensively bad. Yeah. Um, and I'm certainly that way with slashers. Like I can watch a real like two out of five slasher and still enjoy it. Mm. Um, And I can watch a real silly ghost thing and enjoy it. Um, But when it comes to like Dracula, Dracula, I was going (laughs) to say, and werewolves and anaconda and giant sharks and that kind of thing, it just really isn't my bag. Um, I have a, I think we've talked about this on the show before, but I have a hard time even seeing it as horror because I'm like, okay, there's not going to be a giant alligator in the sewer. But I do go on vacations and I could accidentally end up talking to a stranger who kills me. And if ghosts are real, I'm fucked. <laughs> if one comes into my house, like you're just screwed, right? So I don't know totally what it is about why, like the, is it called the Universal Monsters? Yeah. Like those have never really appealed to me. Kaiju movies don't really appeal to me. Um, unless they're doing something really innovative or they're using that as one portion of a like larger hybrid genre. So for example, Jaws, I wouldn't say that Jaws is exclusively like a thriller or a horror. I would say that it's a drama with horror elements. Um, And I think the same about Cujo from what I remember, a lot of the film is about like her as a mother. Now, Alligator to me has nothing going for it (laughs) aside from this like creature feature thing. Like there's nothing in it that makes me think about the human experience that makes me think about the world and my place in it. And so for a film to be in a genre that I don't typically like, it's going to have to do something like that for me to like it. I want to ask you something because I was just thinking while you were saying that. Because I feel tonally Alligator is not super far removed from Gremlins, but you love Gremlins. 
Yeah, but the gremlins are cute and funny. Like the mogwais are cute and the gremlins are funny. And and I feel like Billy is a character that I actually that the film does the work to make me invested in. I don't feel like this film ever made me really care about David. Like at the beginning, it's like, oh, his partner died and he's sad about it. But we don't spend enough time with him to actually feel like he is sad about it. You know, like there's not enough time spent with him to get that. I also genuinely do think that Gremlins has something beyond the movie, which is this idea of we talk about this in our Gremlins deep dive, like Western colonization and like Billy is this total loser putz who takes something that he should be caring for and having responsibility for and fucking it up due to his own like ignorant selfishness preoccupations. So there is something deeper in that to me. And even like uh, Phoebe Cates' storyline has more to it than this. Yeah. Like than I, alligator. I think that's fair. Because I think if you want to, if you want to try to dig at what larger messages could be talking about, it could be about like animal testing and I mean, really light. Yeah. Like look oh, at that. Oh yeah. Because that was another part of this, the addition of sci-fi. Like it's actually classified as a sci-fi movie. <laughs> the science in it is so dumb. <laughs> yeah. Like it's not, I don't know. Like, so I love urban legends and I've read about alligators in the sewers. Alligators in the sewers. <laughs> <laughs> but this film is not urban legendy to me. Mm-hmm. Um. yeah I don't know and the other tricky thing is it's hard for me to divorce this from context like we just watched a two and a half hour slow cinema movie with a really engaged audience and then we saw this with I'm gonna say less than 20 people in attendance and a really shit audience Yeah. so I'm already tired I've already like expended a lot of brain energy and I just wanted to watch something dumb and fun and I think I couldn't really appreciate the dumb funness of it because people were not talking in a fun way, not being like, not like when we saw Mac and me where it's like laughter and whoops and hollers. They're just genuinely chatting through the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And like we saw the big Lebowski last week in the theater. And again, there's excitement and people know their places of when to cheer and, and have their moments, but they're still watching the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's just this, this thing that's happening more and more with people treating going to the movies, like being in their living room. And like, I get it. We watched, um, uh, there was a movie we were watching the other night at home and we were kind of a bit chatty through it with each other. Fly? Yes. Yeah. We rewatched the fly and we'd seen it before and we were, we were being a little bit chatty and kind of being like, Oh, this and all that, but we wouldn't do that in a movie theater. No. Like, and that's the thing that people are doing more and more. And I just, uh, so it's possible I would have enjoyed this more without that because so many of the people I follow on Letterboxd really like this and I did not. I forgot about Anaconda until you said it. I really liked Anaconda as well. Oh man, I went to a sleepover at a friend's house who was like really scared of snakes. Like big phobia, scared of snakes. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, we probably like bullied and peer pressured her. I think it was her birthday too. <laughs> into like watching Anaconda and her mom got wind, I think from her little sister that we were watching Anaconda and like came in and gave us the fucking business and was like, you will not watch this. Like she's going to be so upset. And so I only saw a little bit of it. And then she ejected the VHS and we all got in trouble, which I mean, legit, she probably would have been so scared. Oh man. Well, and like the mom too, like the mom's going to have to deal with it. 
Yeah, the <laughs> next the day. <laughs> yeah. But oh, that's man. a that's a core memory. That's <laughs> Just being really funny. like movie shamed and not getting to finish Anaconda. <laughs> we were watching it. We were having like a slumber party in the living room as you do. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Oh, Such man. big trouble. That's great. So alligator, it tapped into another fear that I have that I always forget that I have. But whenever it happens on film, even if it's in the worst movie possible, and it's usually in these kind of B level horror movies, it just like makes my heart skip a beat. And it's one of to die this way would be one of the worst things ever. Drowning. No, yeah, yes, but not that. It's getting be- your legs bit off while you're in the water. Uh no. Okay. I'm gonna I'm done guessing. It's being swallowed whole. Nah, I think it'd be fine. No. <laughs> <laughs> like there is a moment in this. There's a moment in I think it's like Jaws 3D or something like that, where the person hasn't been like chewed up and eviscerated and then it's just like gulp. The person is fully still alive, but they're inside the mouth of the creature, like looking out and they just are about to be swallowed and just disappear into this monster. I like being buried alive. Exactly. But, but like you can see, you, you can see your way out and your only way out is through these jaws that are like snapping with sharp teeth. So like you can't go out through there because you'll get killed. Can't go back. Going to get you're going to drown or you're going to get killed. It's a nightmare. You ever seen pictures of like a snake who has swallowed a human hole and you can like properly see the body? Yeah, that's a, that's again, same thing. Wild. I fucking hate it. I'm not scared of that because again, <laughs> it's not going to happen to me. Like it's just not going to happen to me. Good man. I'm more scared of fires, which like, whoo, world over could happen to me right now. I'm more scared of like the movie contagion is scarier. Yeah. 28 days later. More is scarier. Well, and I stay my ass out of the water, so I, I really don't have yeah, anything to worry about. What if there's alligators? In the sewer? <laughs> yeah, they were fucked. I got to tell you in this movie too, like they sure tried with the miniature work, but it looks so fake. Like it's so bad. Like you can just tell that's not, none of it's real. I appreciate, I appreciate the practicality in the movie because yeah the miniatures don't look great but the practical alligator they do some fun yeah, stuff bad. with it do you know who which famous actor was a production assistant in the special effects department on this movie frank silva no i don't know i don't think his name is in the credits hmm. brian cranston really yep amazing oh hey man walter white himself did you like this movie more than me do you think I wouldn't watch it again. I think I did. But yeah, I I didn't love it. Like there's so many ridiculous lines and bits. The police chief was just a cartoon. Yeah. The like David, I mean, you could have subbed him in for the David from Rope. <laughs> like I didn't give a shit about David. Fun fact though, Robin Riker, she was on episode 3 of season 1 of Buffy. As who? So the episode's called Witch. It's the exploding cheerleader episode. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's the monster of the week. She's like the old cheerleader. She's the mom? Yeah, she's like old cheerleader captain. Who like inhabits her daughter's body? <laughs> yeah. Oh. That's great. That's a good episode. I like I like that episode of Buffy better than... Alligator. And like the first scene of Buffy is not great. 
honestly, watching this movie just made me want to watch Jaws again. And like we have watched Jaws twice in the last month and I would watch it again. Yeah. I don't know. I don't get it. I think if you like creature features, it's probably pretty fun. And I think if you don't, skip ahead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Agreed. How did Alligator make you feel? Uh, sillily satisfied. That make you feel? It made me feel bored by this over-the-top rehash garbage. Oh, garbage shit. I added just now. The hottest of takes. Yeah, when I get hot takey, watch out. Yeah, grab the solve. Elliot's hot taken all the time. But when I hot take, you're going to get burned, baby. <laughs> all right, let's go to the next movie. It's my mystery movie pick. We were at home for once. And I chose the 2022 comedy slash drama or dramedy, if you will. Cha-Cha Real Smooth. Uh, it was directed. What a dumb title. <laughs> it was written and directed by Cooper Rafe. It stars him as Andrew, Dakota Johnson as Domino, Evan Asante as David, Vanessa Burkhart as Lola, Leslie Mann as Andrew's mom, Brad Garrett as stepdad Greg, and Raul <laughs> Castillo as Joseph. Synopsis. A young man who works as a bar mitzvah party host strikes up a friendship with a mother and her autistic daughter. What do you think of Cha-Cha Real Smooth? So this came out recently-ish. Yeah. And I thought the title was dumb. Mm. And I thought the poster was bland. Straight to streamer. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think much about it. But then it was kind of cropping up on Letterboxd with people who I follow giving it like quite high yeah. ratings. Then the other thing is not to get into every genre I hate, but romance ain't really my thing. Romance ain't it. No, I'm not. I am so happy for everybody who's loving this red, white and royal blue, but it's not for me. I didn't like, it's like the number one thing on letterbox this week. So I looked it up. It's nuts. I didn't even know what it was all about. It's I don't know what it's all about, but it's funny because I was talking about this with our buddy Ashley. We were in um, an Indigo the other day for all of you who aren't from Canada. That's like big, a bookstore, big bookstore, big bookstore. Um, and I was like, yeah, everybody's watching this like red, white and something. And then she goes red, white and royal blue. And I was like, oh, have you seen it? And she's like, no, but that's the book right there. <laughs> and there was a big wall of like romance books, you know, with those like really bright primary color covers and then they're like cartoon people yeah. um like illustrated people and i was like oh so it's based on a book i mean i'm very happy that within that genre there's this gay romance that is so popular right now i think that's great nonetheless i don't think it'll be for me because i don't like any of those movies like i need the romance to also be portrait of a lady on fire <laughs> right so yeah this was just I was like, even if people are liking it, if it's within that genre, I don't know how much I'll like it. Right. Never heard of Cooper Rafe. And mm -hmm. so it's just like, and really and truly, I still think the title's not good. I mm -hmm. think there could have been a better title. So when you picked it, I was just like, okay, let's see. And honestly, I really liked it. Yeah. We cha-cha real smoothed into convincing me that it was good. The smoothest cha-cha. Uh, yeah. I, I think... Of all the movies that kind of exist in this, I would say kind of sub-genre of the genre, this is doing something better. So when I say that, I, 
I'm thinking of like a 500 days of summer yeah, or a garden state or some, or like an Elizabeth yeah. town. This is something more, like that. More in that like indie romance, like hipster romance, yeah. which I have been more prone to giving a go than like Cinderella story, and princess diaries. And I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the romance movies, but yeah. Yeah. Like this, I feel had interesting, more complexly written characters. It still has Apple's continued investment in kindness from the characters and the content it's putting out, uh, a la Ted Lasso. And Andrew, my our lead character, is not a Tom or Joseph Gordon-Levitt from 500 Days of Summer, and he's not an Andrew Largeman from Garden State. He's a really interesting character to follow, and he's not a fucking prick. No, I think he definitely, the character is still figuring out who he is, and he has some moments of like selfishness or like other qualities we might not like, but he recognizes those and apologizes for them. And who of us at 22 wasn't like that right so i really liked um first of all i did i really liked that this was sweet like i am all for just niceness Mm -hmm. i think that's good and nice to watch that and people being killed by serial killers two faves um let's just see like healthy communication yeah that was the thing i liked the most about this we've been rewatching friends and I've seen Friends so many times. I've been watching it since I was young. I don't think it's the greatest show ever, but there's just a real nostalgia Same. tied up in it. And, Same. you know, we've rewatched it a couple times together and I still enjoy it when we do. But one of the things I've been most frustrated with on this rewatch of Friends is the way that the show and so many other sitcoms and so many other movies in that romance genre just like venerate and up- uplift bad communication. Like where it's like, oh, yeah, like it's it's natural to lie to your partner because you don't want them to know you have a messy closet. Yeah. You know, and and toxic relationships and like lying to each other. And, you know, how much how many times in Friends, like one character says to another, like, well, don't let them know that. And it's like, man, if you just if you just said how you were feeling. Mm -hmm. um, Less interesting TV show in that in that type of thinking. But in reality setting a much more healthy standard for relationships. But the thing that's so tricky about that is so many young people watch sitcoms before they're actually in relationships, before they're actually in adulthood. And they watch these things thinking that that's what life is like, you know, like how I met your mother and all of those shows where there's some really bad and potentially harmful depictions of how to be in relationship, not just romantic relationship, a relationship with anyone. And so it was really refreshing to see this movie with good communication, with accountability. Like there's this really like, oh man moment where Andrew, cause he has this like friggin' adorable relationship with his little brother. Mm-hmm. Like I just, that was one of my favorite parts of the movie was that kind of a relationship. I don't have that kind of a relationship with any of my siblings. And I was like, oh, how cool would that be <laughs> to have a relationship like that? Um, And he has a moment where he's quite mean to his little brother, but he apologizes and -hmm. he takes accountability for it. And I think seeing that on screen, seeing like vulnerability, honesty, 
saying how you're feeling, setting healthy boundaries, learning through mistakes, being accountable, calling people on their bullshit. Like mm-hmm. he does a couple like pretty shitty things that his mom calls him out for. Yeah. You know, I, I just I thought that was really refreshing to see that. And of course, this movie is still in the vein of like indie romance. Mm-hmm. And we're definitely meant to come away thinking that Andrew's so cute and sweet and adorable. But I'd rather see a movie like that that has depictions of like healthy communication, good boundary setting and learning and accountability than the shit we liked when we were teenagers. Well, that's just it. Like I can't, I couldn't help but just think back to this stuff in a, in the similar genre that I was watching when I was a teenager or, uh, or a young adult. And, you know, the, the more beautiful and complicated complexities of our characters in so many of those those films that came before, those things are weaponized against each yeah, other. And totally. Domino, like Dakota Johnson in this film, like would have totally just been manic pixie dream girl. And as soon as an imperfection came up, like he like Andrew would have weaponized that against her. And that was just the tropes that you follow. Like Five Hundred Days of Summer is a very unhealthy film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can see the past this this film could have taken had it been made back then to follow a similar kind of structure. But that's what I meant when I feel like this film is doing something better in the genre. And even watching the trailer for Andrew Rafe's or no, not Andrew Cooper Rafe's first film. It just seems like he has a good voice within this genre. And I look forward to watching that and seeing what he does in the future. And if other like white men who date women and I don't know if he's straight. There's this really funny line in the movie where his brother's like, why do you think I'm gay? And he's like, well, you haven't made it to college yet. And his brother's like, what happens in college? He says lots of things. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know if Cooper Rafe is totally straight, but yeah. as a white man who's making films about white men dating women, if he can speak to other white men who date women about like good communication and healthy boundaries, I think that's a that's a win for the genre. Yeah. Um, even if it still is in that genre, which is not totally my favorite genre, yeah. but I really liked it. I also, I'm coming to realize I really like Dakota Johnson. Yeah. And I think I, um, had fallen into that gross, partially misogynistic, partly, partly elitist shit that happened to like Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart of like, Oh, they were in twilight. So fuck them. Yeah. Um, and I think that's happened to her because of 50 shades of gray, which like I haven't even seen, but it's just like, Oh, Dakota, Dakota Johnson, but she's great in the new Suspiria. She was awesome in um, the lost daughter. Mm-hmm. And I've just been really compelled by her performances and the things we've watched recently and reflecting on my own unwarranted bias against her. Yeah. I totally agree. As we've watched her more, I think she's awesome. And I think she can play really complicated, complex characters and convey different, different emotions and different characteristics that can make you love her or make you terrified of her. And that's amazing. And I think she's willing to play complicated and messy women, but in films that don't blame them for being that or villainize them for being that way. Yeah. And I think that's cool. Yeah, I agree. Something else this film just reaffirmed for me is that I really like when Leslie Mann gets to mom in movies she's in. I mean, I'll still always love her in I want some fucking French toast. (laughs) But 
I really love her as a as a mom. That I think that's what brought us back to trying to watch This Is Forty, not that long ago, and being like, "Ooh, we don't like this movie," but I do like her with her kids in it. Yeah, and when I've watched interviews with her, and specifically too interviews with her when she's with her family, be it her kids or her kids and her husband, or just her husband Judd Apatow, it just seems like she is. She brings a lot of who she is to these roles, especially when she is playing a mom. I really, I really like it. I think she's, I think she's great. Yeah. I like her too. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, and speaking of kids, I thought uh, both Evan Asante and Vanessa Burkhart were so good in this. Like they were two of my favorite characters in the movie. And I just found these young actors to do such a good job. Um, very, very, very good that Vanessa Burkhart is autistic Mm -hmm. because yeah, I just think of, we of course are not the people to speak about how good the autism representation is in this, but I think about this compared to music Mm -hmm. or even like music, you black, I will. Yeah. I, I think I couldn't be friendly with someone who has seen that movie in a favorable way. Um, but even something like atypical, yeah, or like I was even thinking like Big Bang Theory, where the, yeah, the word yeah. Aut- autistic I don't think is ever used, but it is heavily implied. Yeah, and it's for the butt of a joke. Yeah. Um, I just found the character of Lola to be awesome. Yeah, I really liked the relationship that her and Andrew had, and I thought the discussion around like their bond and boundaries and connection between them, but then also between Domino and Andrew when they speak about Lola was really good. Something that this made me think of is the sadness that is the cancellation of please like me. Is that what it was? No, not please like me. Everything's going to be okay. Mm. The Josh Thomas show, um, which I really, I mean, I really like please like me, but everything's going to be okay. was doing some great stuff for autism representation and Josh Thomas, the showrunner, is autistic. So, yeah. Anyway, I really liked Vanessa Burkhardt. I'd like to see her in other things. And I really liked Evan Asante. And I'd like to see him in more things. Yeah. Even like they're like David's little, a lot of David's this week. <laughs> Even uh, Evan Asante, who plays David, his little buddy Rodrigo was just like so adorable <laughs> yeah. in the little bits that he was in. And I, and I love that Andrew has these younger people in his life and they're all on the same level. Like he's not looking down at them. No. Like these are, everybody's a person. They have something to offer him from their vantage point as 13 year olds. And he has something to offer them from his vantage point as 20, as a 22 year old. And Lola has something to offer him from her like way that she experiences the world. And he has something to offer her from the way he experiences the world. And that's all on a level playing field. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And I, I love the complicated points of life that Andrew and Domino are in and the way they talk about it and the way that as the story unfolds, they recognize these things in each other that and these desires and how complicated it, it is for each of them. But it doesn't feel like it. there's complexity to that relationship and the way they talk to each other. It's not so cut and dry. Yeah, this was great. Yeah, it's a, it's a good little easy film that I think 
I, I really respect the way that it approaches the content that can be approached in different ways. A good, easy film that does more. Yeah. Yeah. How'd it make you feel? It made me feel charmed by this exploration of human relationships. Yeah. How about you? Pleasantly surprised with how this stands out in its genre. Okay. Last theater film of the week. Um, we went and saw Chrissy Nono. Chrissy Nono. We saw Memento. 2000 film. Mystery slash thriller. Directed by Christopher Nolan, or as we prefer to say, Chrissy Nono. Uh, written by him and his brother, Jonathan Nolan. It's or Johnny Nono. <laughs> or Johnny Nono. Yeah, the Nonos. Nono <laughs> brothers. It stars Guy Pierce as Leonard, not Lenny. <laughs> yeah. His wife called him Lenny. He doesn't like that. He hates it. Carrie Ann Moss as Natalie. Joe Pantoliano. Nice. As Teddy. Stephen Tabalowski as Sammy Jenkins. Harriet Sansom Harris as Mrs. Jenkins. And Georgia Fox as Catherine Shelby. Uh, the synopsis. A man with short-term memory loss attempts to track down his wife's murderer. Dun, dun, dun. Who killed my wife? I don't remember. What did you think of Memento? Yeah, Christy No Knows back. Uh, this was a good opportunity to rewatch this. Um, I remember watching this back in high school where it just rocked my shit. I thought it was it was amazing. But what was really cool is that we went, but we actually went with two people that had never seen this before. So that was kind of special. Not only had they never seen it before, but they didn't know like the twist so to speak yeah um and i feel like this is it's maybe not as popular as a fight club that's the only thing that's coming to my mind right now in terms of pop culture credential um but one of the people we we saw it with she said that she actually recently watched fight club for the first time and didn't know how it ended and i'm like how you managed to get to 2023 and not know that is kind of wild so yeah it was kind of it's like, it's like when I go on the internet and watch movie reaction, uh, movie reactions, and people have navigated the world to this point not knowing what happens in the sixth sense. It's like, congratulations. You're incredible. But like I said, I remember this blowing my mind, rocking my shit when I, when I was a teenager, and I feel like I let it confuse me more than is necessary. And I think that might be due in part to the fact that I had this special edition DVD and it's not a straightforward DVD menu. You have to, I should, we should really throw it in sometime soon so I can show you because it is really, you have to navigate it in a weird way to finally get it to play the movie. So it was this whole to do before I could even start watching it. And I'm like, oh man, I've already fried my brain and I haven't even started watching the movie yet. <laughs> and I will say this about this movie. I think it's a cool Unique way to tell a story, the way that it's edited and structured. It's unconventional, but gets us into the mind, so to speak, of Leonard. Um, and it's a good, it's an interesting exploration of the fragility of memory and that idea of losing memory. I mean, it's so unfathom unfathomable to me and scares the shit out of me. The, idea of losing memories or not knowing who people are or where I am and things like that. It's uh, it's really scary. 
I agree. I think some of my favorite parts of the film are the like flashbacks to his life pre-accident. Hmm. Um, and I think that those are compelling and visually interesting. Um, but I do take issue. We've talked about this a lot lately. With Christopher Nolan claiming that in both this and Oppenheimer, and this kind of was a mind boggling thing to realize that he had used the black and white versus color structure before, even though I had seen Memento, it had been so long. It's probably been over 15 years. Um, but in both Oppenheimer and in this, he claims that color is subjective and black and white is objective. And I just disagree. He said that about this film. Yes. And I just, I just wholeheartedly disagree. I think when I think, and, and, um, this actually isn't a film that you and I have talked about, um, recently, but when I think of a film that's exploring memory and memory loss from a subjective point of view, I think the father. Yeah. Like that is subjective. Yeah. That is, we are seeing and experiencing the events through the limited perspective of one character and that perspective is not objective, right? Whereas in this, to me, both the color and the black and white are objective. We just might be tricked into thinking there's a subjectivity to the color because we don't have all the information yet. But that does not make it subjective. Yeah, like we were talking about this um, after the last movie we watched. And so often, the formula that makes a movie subjective is being told through first person, mm-hmm. which parts of this, the color parts are told in. I don't think any of the black and white parts have Leonard's voiceover talking to us or narrating what's going on. Right. Yeah. And maybe that's all Chrissy Nono is talking about is that because yeah, we he's hear like the Leonard- camera's closer to Leonard. So it's subjective. My ass. Chrissy. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. I'm just like, I just think you're, you're giving yourself more credit than, then you have, I think that we're, we're certainly, we certainly only spend time with Leonard, but that doesn't make this subjective in my mind. I do think the use of black and white and color is a smart way to keep the audience in line with the structure because even having seen this movie before, even knowing how it ended, it is still confusing. I found this was the time I found it the least confusing. How many times do you think you've seen it? Oh man, probably like a handful. It's one of those ones where like you bring it to like a sleepover with the boys <laughs> and it's like, let's watch Memento. That sounds correct. <laughs> wow. Um, but one of the arguments that a lot of people make about this movie, and I do find it fun to piss on Christopher Nolan. I do too. Not I mean, literally. I mean, he's but. made some shit that I really, really like, but he just, it's fun to bag on. The film bro the, of it the all. film bro white guy that makes the white guy film bro movies. <laughs> so I have some I have some good quotes from film reviewers of the time who talked about the whole what is this film if told in linear order? Boring. Marjorie Baumgarten at the time said, quote, in forward progression, the narrative would garner little interest, thus making the reverse storytelling of filmmakers conceit. Sean Burns said, for all its formal wizardry, Memento is ultimately an ice-cold feat of intellectual gamesmanship. Once the visceral thrill of the puzzle structure begins to wear off, there's nothing left to hang on to. The film itself fades like one of Leonard's temporary memories. And I think my favorite, Roger Ebert. Ah, uh, homeboy. Always love that guy. 
He saw it twice, and he said after his second viewing that the second viewing, quote, provided greater understanding on a plot level, but didn't enrich the viewing experience. Here's the thing. Hot take incoming. Talked about this on our Barbenheimer episode. I don't think that Christopher Nolan excels with making emotionally complex characters that you give a shit about. Or films that have much thematic heft. Yeah. Like there's something there for sure. Like there's some interesting stuff about memory, but not like After Sun, not like The Father, not that you could sit and have a really, you know, to quote the women from last week, that was dark. Do you want to sit? Do you want to go for coffee and talk about it? Like, <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's not much to do that with, with the Christopher Nolan film other than like, oh, wow, that part was cool. That's just it. Like he, there's no denying that when it comes to filmmaking, he is an innovator mm -hmm. looking for new ways to tell stories. But the characters that are at the core of the stories and the characters are the things that for me is what I glom onto for emotion and to affect me that doesn't really exist in the majority of his films and you know i don't think all films have to do that like when totally when not. these filmmakers critique it and say like it's a filmmaker's conceit it's the only thing that makes it interesting like yeah but it does make it interesting yeah. i do remember watching this for the first time and being so compelled and because it's been so long since my first viewing i was compelled again i can't see myself watching this much more than once a decade because I agree with that filmmaker who said like, there's not much to hang on to afterwards. Totally. The and ending I do think does have some interesting and unsettling stuff to say. Yeah. Um, and I really like that. Yeah. Like the bleakness of the ending hit me in a way it hadn't previously. Yeah. So I don't think this film is completely devoid of anything. I just think, it functions more as a good time mystery thriller, like watching a season of True Detective might do. Yeah. And not, it's not Tarkovsky. It's not Charlotte Wells. It's not that. I have something I've been so excited to share with you, though. I just want to, I just want to say, though I have a fun time dunking on Chrissy Nono, and I'm, I'm, I, I like to lean really heavy into the hot take central. And I think it's just because, I was totally one of those film boys that would unabashedly just rate Memento five out of five when I was in high school. And now revisiting it so many years later, I just, I'm so, I feel so compelled just to critique. Cause though, you know, I have evolved in the way that I like to watch movies and what I want to get from the movies that I watch. And then there's just the unabashed appreciation for anything that Chrissy Nono does from the film bro community that just kind of drives me nuts. This is the same community that's so dismissive of movies like Barbie. And that drives me crazy. And I think that's why I like it going so hard on Chrissy Nono and his movies, because for me, I don't I don't like when people are poopy that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, We're punching it, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, what do you want to tell me? So, there are a handful of genuine people involved in the filmmaking community who have Letterboxd. And I recently discovered that one of those people is Ayo Adabari. So, she's Sydney from The Bear. Oh, yeah. And so, she has a Letterboxd where she does proper reviews. Sick. Um, and she's a memento. 
recently? I don't know, but she did see it. Okay. Uh, and I'd like to read you her review. God, yes. This is her review. I love her. I just want to say I love her even more since I think we posted it on our Instagram video. Yeah, of her. The, I like TV and I like movies. Or I watch a lot of TV. I watch a lot of movies. I don't have many hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she seems sick, and I was so excited to see Bottoms. I think that's going to be awesome. Okay, so this is uh, Ayo Adabari's review of Memento. Quote, watch this at the same time as my bestie while we FaceTime. Being a girl rocks, heart emoji. I liked the score, dot, dot, dot. I liked the Memento score. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so she's wacky. <laughs> yeah. yeah, her reviews are awesome. That's so great. Um, she definitely does fewer actual written things since I think she's ga- gained more um, visibility, like people know her more. Yeah. And I've noticed that with like filmmakers who are on Letterboxd, they tend to just put that they've watched things. But every once in a while she does, like she doesn't rate things anymore. Mm-hmm. But I really like that. Her review for Bottoms, she did give it five out of five stars with a heart and said, I'm in this with my best friends. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so yeah, she's great. Rachel Sennett also has Letterboxd and she commented on IO. Uh, Adabari's review of Bottoms with, I heard the lead in this is annoying in real life. <laughs> so all very cute. I like that a lot. That's really good. Being a girl rocks heart emoji. <laughs> I love it. Um, I have a couple questions for you. Hey, Guy Pierce in this. Babe or no babe? No babe. No babe? I think I thought babe when I was in high school. Yeah. I no longer do. I mean, he is a handsome man. But to me, yeah. no, babe. Do you think anybody has gotten his tattoos from this movie? Yes. One for one. Yes. I really would question somebody who wants to get John G. raped and murdered my wife in like a bad font <laughs> across their chest. There is one of his tattoos. I would totally get them. Sammy Jenkins? No. What? Never answer the phone. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only one I'd get. <laughs> I do love whatever he sees. Remember Sammy Jenkins? And he tries to like rub it off like it's bad. He's like, oh, what's this? Yeah. It's like you put the tattoo in a, in a bad place, Petey. <laughs> well, it's meant to be there to signal him to look for the other tattoos, I think. But um, but I would be like tattoos this way and like get that tattooed on my hand and point <laughs> it up my sleeve. Um. Okay. Question for you. Yeah. Can I pierce in this film, babe or no babe? No babe. Um. Which of his tattoos would you get? License plate number. <laughs> that was, number that was where my head went first. <laughs> I know you so well. Um, yeah, they're they're, re- they're really stupid. I understand why he has them, <laughs> yeah. but like stylistically, do you think the way he gives himself tattoos would actually work? Um, Feels like it wouldn't penetrate deep enough. Not as well. What was really impressive though is when he was getting the license plate tattoo. The tattoo artist was doing it in like a very like. In like Times New Roman verbatim without like without laying down the, anything Man, to trace. Emma, Emma is just skilled. <sighs> Emma's killing it in the tattoo game. Let me tell you. Did you know that this film had like some pretty cool marketing? It had some like Blair Witch style marketing mm. where there was like a website and when you clicked on it, it was like newspaper clippings and photographs and police reports and you could like learn about the mystery before the movie came out. That's cool. And then they um they sent like that Polaroid of like him with the smile on the beach. They like sent mm. those physically out to people. Um, that's kind of fun. <laughs> um, I do. I am bringing back as maybe a last last moment. Um, 
I broke. I did. <laughs> it's just I broke it. Um, our favorite segment is this interesting or not? Excellent. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. So this is from IMDb Trivia. It's a direct quote from IMDb, IMDb Trivia. Elliot Cuss, do you find this interesting? Mm. Quote, in an August 2007 article in the LA Times, Josh Friedman reported that executive producer Aaron Ryder was surprised when movie ratings group the MPAA listed drug content as one of the reasons for the film's R rating. Quote, the only on-screen drug use involved a diabetic receiving insulin, Ryder said. He figures the board mistook it for, quote, heroin. Although in making this glib comment, he perhaps forgot the scene that contains the snorting of a drug that is presumably not also insulin. <laughs> you don't snort your insulin? So do you find that interesting? Uh, no. Ah, damn. So 30 out of 39 people find this interesting. Oh, boo hiss. Boo hiss. I will say, though, man, it's Carrie Ann Moss and Joe Pantoliano coming hot off the Matrix with this one. Matrix come out and came out in 1999. This came out in 2000. They're just riding that money train. Although this was like a pretty independent film when it was made. This wasn't when Christopher Nolan is who he is now. But I can see more people going to see it because it's like, oh, tr- oh, oh shit, Trinity's in it and Cypher, I guess. <laughs> and Cypher, I guess. <laughs> yes. Okay. How did revisiting Memento make you feel? A new feeling of bleakness I hadn't felt before. How did it make you feel? Made me feel there for a good time, but content to have a big gap until the next revisit. Yeah. Like, yeah, I feel like I haven't watched this since high school. And that was a good amount of time yeah. between yeah. watches. Yep. Okay. Last film of the week. This one's heavy. We watched the biography crime drama Till. Um, it's from 2022. It was directed by Chinoye Chuku and written by her, Michael Riley, and Keith Beauchamp. Beauchamp. Uh, it stars Daniel Deadweiler as Mamie Till Mobley, Jalen Hall as Emmett Till, Kevin Carroll as Rayfield Moody, Frankie Faison as John Carthan, Tosin Cole as Medgar Evers, and Whoopi Goldberg herself as Alma Carthan. Whoopi. The synopsis for this one, in 1955, after Emmett Till is murdered in a brutal lynching, his mother vows to expose the racism behind the attack while working to have those involved brought to justice. What did you think of Till? I just want to say off the bat, I was kind of thinking about this last night. 2022 was a killer year for movies. I feel like I feel like we've talked about this before, but totally. And I could be wrong about this, but this is the connection that my brain makes with no evidence is that perhaps many films waited to be released until like we were back in theaters for good. Yeah. And so films that actually would have come out in 2020 or 2021 kind of all came out in 2022. Yeah. Like it's. And that the films that came out in 2020 and 2021 were the films that studios were like, yeah, they're not as good. We'll just release them. Yeah. Or we don't have the money. Like you're seeing that now with, like Shiva Baby came back to theaters because it was never in theaters and that's happening like all across North America. Mm-hmm. So some of those films that were released at the time that people or studios didn't have a lot of faith in or didn't want to hold on to because of the budget they had um, that were since well received or kind of given another chance to be in theaters now. Yeah. And like, well, 2023 has been okay. I think the big, I think the biggest thing is the biggest cinematic thing has been Barbenheimer. But in terms of the volume of movies coming out and the quality of the movies coming out, 
has not been on par with the shit that came out in 2022. That'll go down as a huge movie year because even us recently watching like Cha Cha Real Smooth, now watching Till, we watched The Beasts, like so much of that stuff came out in 2022. It is bizarre. But getting back to Till, I really wanted to see this. I I was hoping to see it pre-Oscars, even though it was unfortunately really overlooked by the Academy. But yeah, I never got around to it. Um, but as soon as I realized, as soon as the movie started playing and I realized what we were watching, I think my first reaction was, oh no, because I knew how heavy of a story we were about to get into. So right off the bat, some of my thoughts, I thought that this was beautifully directed. I, It had, at least in the opening of it, it had some very, that thing you do, latter half of Pleasantville color palette and it played with that really well even tonally at the beginning of the film and I said this to you when we were watching it like it has like a bit of a La La Land vibe in that you feel like they could just break into song at any moment just from the way the music was composed and the color palette and the the mood that was being portrayed by everybody but what was really what was really great so the highlight for me in this movie was the music and all of the those happy positive sunshine things i was just talking about is undercut very early on with some very ari aster like music cues that are very unsettling like it's very winding string like something's wrong something is about to happen and you don't know what it is yet except you do know what it is right like yeah, i yeah, think yeah. that's Always the interesting thing to me about biopics and I so don't really love biopics that I have never really looked into this all that much, but I wonder to what degree when a filmmaker is making a biopic, they ask, they consider what people know and what people don't know because I personally feel like the story of Emmett Till and his mother is really well known, but maybe it isn't. Because like I, I knew the history of this before I watched the movie. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, and the synopsis doesn't hide it. I don't think the trailer hides it. So we do know what's going to happen. We know that we're waiting for the moment where he is murdered and where yeah. his mother finds out that he's been murdered. Um, but it's also possible that if, say, a younger person watched this today, maybe they wouldn't know. Yeah. So it's yeah, I don't I don't know to what degree that's considered in making something like this. Yeah. It's an interesting question cuz I mean, we've had many conversations about biopics and our complicated feelings about them. And this uh, this was another film this week that sparked a conversation about subjectivity versus objectivity. And that that was something that the filmmaker talked like spoke about and it's it's become such a complicated, complex thing. Let's, I mean, yeah, there's some different weight going on in this compared to, say, Memento. Yeah. Um, so Chuku, when she uh, signed on to do this film, she said she would only do it if it was from Mamie's perspective. Mm-hmm. They'd only do it if it was from the mother's perspective. At the same time, I think when you're considering considering questions of what does the audience know and what don't they know, you probably need to show some of what happened in Mississippi mm-hmm. for clarity of events 
to the truth of history. Yeah. Right. And so can this ever exist as a biopic where you are completely subjectively from Mamie's point of view? Probably not. If you're also trying to do the work of telling the true story of her and her son. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so that's really difficult. Um, and I don't envy people who make these movies. This is why I struggle with biopics so much is it's just like, how, how do you both honor these real people work within like truth mm-hmm. or like what we believe is truth? I think this film does a really excellent job with that. Uh, but of course we know of other biopics where <laughs> they're really playing fast and loose with what truly happened. Yeah. Um, but then also make for like a compelling and interesting experience that like does something to the viewer. So I do think that this movie runs pretty traditionally like a biopic does. Yeah. Like I don't think it's doing much new with like the genre of biopic, but in terms of being a biopic about the story of Emmett Till and his mother, I think it's very successful. Yeah. I I 100% agree. And I don't know. Like, I don't know that it would be ethical to do a film that wasn't this film. Like, to do something just... It's so interesting to me that we started with Rope, which is inspired by a real murder. Mm-hmm. And then we ended with Till, which is a biopic about a real murder. And I just don't think that it would be all that ethical for somebody to make the Rope version of Till. Yeah. And so I think, you know... Of course, it's falling into biopic tropes because what do you do when it's based on real people's lives? You have to end with title cards about what happened after. Yeah. You just have to. And that's something that people are unconstrained by when it's not a biopic. So mm-hmm. it's it's a tricky it's a tricky thing. Um, I'm still not in love with biopics. I still find them incredibly complicated. We talked about that with The Elephant Man. We started talking about it the week that we watched Jackie. I don't have to say much more about it. Talked about it with Fruitvale Station too. Yeah, it's a complicated thing. But I do think with this movie, even when you know the history, I just don't know how you could watch this and not be impacted by it. It was incredibly upsetting. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's supremely well acted, specifically by Daniel Deadweiler. Yeah, it is majorly messed up. Like now having seen this movie, I followed the conversations about how it was pretty messed up how both this film and Daniel Daniel Deadweiler in particular were not nominated for anything at the Academy Awards. Now having seen it, I'm even more surprised because films like this often do get nominated for Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. Like this is in the same, in terms of like not subject matter, but just the way it's, the way the film is, it's in the same category to me as like a coda. Yeah. You know, it's that type of a movie in terms of like the audience it's appealing to. Um, and Daniel Deadweiler is just incredible in it. I mean, I really like her. Station Eleven. Yep. Check it out. She's also going to be in that new Jane Showburn movie. I saw the TV glow mm. with like Phoebe Bridgers and yeah, snail yeah. mail and stuff. Very excited for that. She's just so good in this. Yeah. And like, this is such a important story. And so many of the aspects of this story are sadly relevant today in so many ways and i think that that not only was what was happening and like some of the performances and the way that the story was being told so just emotionally obliterating and affecting it's knowing that this really happened and 
that the things that came afterward and like the fact that lynching wasn't outlawed until just last year. And it's, I mean, the film makes all of those things clear and especially with like the after the film, like information that it gives you. But, you know, often people have conversations, really important conversations about the importance of seeing underrepresented groups in joy, in messiness, in like not just in trauma, you know, like that kind of thing. This is a true story. And it's a true story that has like deep ties to the civil rights movement, which is important. Mm -hmm. And it does still fucking matter because as I do with any time we watch a biopic, like after we watched Oppenheimer, went and read the whole Oppenheimer Wikipedia page, I read Emmett Till's full Wikipedia page and it is long. As recently as last year, his memorial that's at the site where they found his body, there's like a memorial plaque. Um, it's had to be replaced over three times because people put bullet holes in it and then take pictures of themselves beside it. Um, and the most recent memorial that they've put up there is apparently bulletproof, indestructible, they say. But how fucked up is it that they have to make a bulletproof, indestructible memorial because people keep like people have written slurs on it. People have painted over it in all black. People have shot it. People have taken pic- like really offensive pictures with it. In the 2000s. And like, not only is all of that fucked up in that happening with a memorial, but it's a memorial for a 14-year-old boy. This is the other thing that like completely not on purpose we ended up doing by watching Rope first and this last. Rope is based on a, inspired by or influenced by or is the starting point for it is the real life murder of a 14-year-old boy. That was a 14-year-old white boy. Mm-hmm. In Chicago, he was wealthy. His family was wealthy. And the two men who murdered him were found guilty and went to jail. Yeah. In the 1920s. That is not the case here. Both are murders of 14-year-old boys, but one because he's black. The justice isn't there, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, not that we necessarily believe in prison as the ultimate form of justice, but certainly within the context of what justice was at the time, justice wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is really, really. It's wild. And then to see like um, the director, she said about like uh, Daniel Deadweiler not being nominated for an Oscar. I'm just going to read what she said because I think it's totally. This is the director. The director. Yeah. She said um, the film industry is, quote, upholding whiteness and perpetuating an unabashed misogyny towards black women. And this was when Viola Davis also wasn't nominated for the Woman King. Yeah. Um, and people were just like, what the what the hell? Like, this doesn't even make sense. So after having seen the movie, she's just so good in it. And I think the, the couple moments where it does lean very subjective really shine. They're really impactful. I think the final scene in the movie is incredibly impactful. Um, and she just does great work throughout. I really respect how uh, Chukwu doesn't linger on like the violence inflicted on Emmett. Um, She certainly pays tribute to the fact that Mamie wanted people to see his body. It's not fun, (laughs) Um, but that's what she wanted, but it doesn't, I don't think it makes spectacle of the violence or spectacle of the body, which is a really fine line, I think. And, basically went away with this knowing that white people suck and 
There's a there's a lot of work. They sucked then, they suck now, and we're a part of that, and that is awful. Yep. Yeah. This is a it's films like this and stories like this that are a reminder to educate and re-educate yourself. Yep. And uh, make sure that you have social awareness and to navigate this world with kindness. One of the things that makes me happy to know about this movie is that um, because Mimi Till Mobley had passed away before the film was made. Mm -hmm. So she wasn't able to be like a part of the process. And that's always a tricky thing for me. I'm like in making a biopic, like are the people who were a part of the real story, a part of this and uh, Simon Wright, who was one of the cousins who was there the night that Emmett was taken. He was a consultant on the film until his death. Mm -hmm. So, and he, like he was with Emmett at the shop and he was with him the night that he was kidnapped. So that's good to know that like someone involved, not just someone in the family, but someone who was directly involved with what happened um, was able to be a part of making the film. And I think it's just a shame that because the film was made so long after the events that many of the people involved couldn't be consultants because they're not alive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Last thing I'll say about this is that I think, again, it was really well crafted. And my experience with it is that I found myself crying not only at the beats where you would expect that yourself to cry, but like just out of nowhere, I'd start crying in a scene where a bit more innocuous, like nothing's really going on, but just the weight of everything I've just seen. And what this story means in history. Mm-hmm. Just, I got hit with waves of that. And then the tears start rolling. And I think, no, this isn't my favorite film I've ever seen, but as I've kind of been talking about this whole episode, is like that is some real powerful emotional work that the film is doing. And I appreciate when films are able to do that. And this film has that double weight of trying to be entertaining and educational. Yeah. And honor. Like, like it's, it's got a lot going, a lot of complicated stuff going on for the people involved in making it and all of these things to try and balance. And I think it does that really well. Yeah. A couple of things I want to say, um, one, which I find really interesting and and it's a slightly different topic of conversation, but I think, you know, this Elliot, that I really love the twilight zone Mm -hmm. and like the original Rod Serling, the twilight zone. So one of the really amazing things about the twilight zone is that Rod Serling was often exploring some really like complicated progressive things through science fiction and like getting past the censors and the broadcasters through that. Um, so he had a different show at the time that Emmett Till was murdered called the U S steel hour and ABC ran it and he wanted, it was like not a science fiction show and he wanted to do an episode about like the injustice of, of this crime. Um, and ABC agreed to do it, but then they like heavily censored and changed the script such that it, the final version didn't look anything like real life. Um, And the reason they did this is because when word got out that they were going to do an episode that was looking at this murder as an injustice, uh, they got hundreds of letters from white supremacists, like threatening them and like saying the things that they would say. Um, And that this is what led Rod Serling to want to do the twilight zone to try and like be able to look at these things in a way that like ABC wouldn't Mm. be able to stop him from doing it. Man old man um and then the last thing i want to mention because i think it's a really 
powerful thing. I thought the film did a really like I knew this the the story, I knew the history of like the murder. What I didn't know as much it was about how tied this was to the civil rights movement in the late fifties and into the sixties. And I think the film showed the significance of relationships between black people in the North and black people in the South and the complication of that really well. And in really like nuanced ways, like there's a conversation that Mamie has with her, I think it's her uncle um, who was there that night that is just like so complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, But in real life, real life, uh, Moses Wright, so that's the uncle that Emmett was staying with, um, he testified at the trial, and they show this in the movie. And in the movie, there's a scene where he like stands up and identifies one of the murderers. And in the film, they show this as well, that the judge says no photos. And I guess that was just such a, like something like this had never happened before, where a black man testified against a white man and not just testified, but stood up, named him, pointed at him. And a photographer was just like, fuck the no photography thing and took a photo of it. Mm. And it is like quite a powerful photo. Mm. And like that, I guess this moment was talked about a lot in the press and in conversations about like the, A, the risk that he was taking on to his life and his family's lives by doing that. Um, Like I read a, a thing that was quoting from the time that said no black man had ever testified against a white man and lived. Um and like that standing up and pointing at him and like the the photo shows that like him standing up and pointing. So we'll link to that because I think it's a pretty powerful photo and I'm grateful that someone was like, fuck you judge mm-hmm. taking this photo. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, the, the film just does a really good job of showing the complicated sacrifices and ways that people thought during the trial and afterwards as well. Right. Yeah. And that's one of those moments. Where like testifying is dangerous. Mm-hmm. I'll say too, the most frustrating button on this whole experience was like, this is such a heavy, powerful film. And then we're watching it on Amazon Prime and we get to the end credits and like the end credits have barely even started. And it's recommending some white savior bullshit movie that's popped up in the bottom corner called like son of the south or something it was like this big like hero picture of a white dude really big and then a bunch of black actors behind him and it's just like what a gross thing to suggest to me right now <laughs> after watching this film i'll just say thankfully we're not really giving prime what they want us to and that's all i'll surreptitiously say yeah i mean they're barely giving us what we want they just fucking cancel league of their own they can they can stick it everything sucks um how did till make you feel pulled in many emotional directions and make you feel it made me feel a pit in my stomach while i was watching it but also a great respect and gratitude for black activists both then and now indeed dads of the week who's your bad dad nominee I nominated Brandon. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> he is just a um, piss boy. Yeah. He is a piss boy, big incel energy. <laughs> yep. Um, I think that's best shown through like the, the ways that Philip and Brandon respond differently to like what they did Yeah. and how Brandon continues to like manipulate Philip um, 
through like dramatic irony, they continually show that like Brandon's really getting his rocks off on like <laughs> the guy I killed is in here and none of you know. Yeah. Um, and Philip does not feel that way. He's like, oh my God, what if they find the body? Yeah. So Brandon just has like a lack of remorse and like he sticks to this philosophy that he has and it's just gross and I don't like him. Yeah. Just a privileged sociopathic white boy. Beep, beep, boop, boop. Just want to flick him. He, he, he stinks. Oh, Brandon? Don't, don't be, be your dad. dad. Rad dad. I picked Gene from Till. He's, uh, he's Mamie's partner. I mean, he is just the person and the support system for Mamie through everything. And he doesn't insert himself into situations. He's simply there to be kind and loving and present and be a a patient force around Mamie and whatever she needs. And even when we're first introduced to him, he's clearly close with with Emmett. He's close with Mamie's mom. They in real life, they ended up being married until he passed away. So clearly he was just as an and just as important in real life as he was in this fictional portrayal of him. Uh, I just thought he was an MVP. Uh, yeah, super lovely. I did think his character was great, but I picked me. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, she's the real MVP. I think her... I, I read reviews of the movie that called her and then therefore the real Mamie, Till Mobley, um, and a reluctant activist like she didn't ask for this Mm -hmm. and i mean she says as much in the film and in real life like there was no part of her that was looking to be the face of the civil rights movement to have her son be the face of the civil rights movement but her determination to like do right by her son and therefore to do right by her people um, it's pretty radical yeah and i mean it'd be radical now but it's certainly radical then and also as a single parent yeah yeah, all right. I'm down with that. Okay. Uh, maybe, maybe be our dad. Be our dad. Um, our rad rec for the week is when you are watching film and other media that is inspired by or based on real stories, doing some research afterwards to like see the ethics involved in making it, what people involved in the real life events have said, just to expand your understanding of what we know of the reality of the significance of what happened. Um, I think that in the case of Till, it did a really great job, but there's so much that it still couldn't talk about. Like there's only so much you can do in two hours and 10 minutes and reading even more about Mamie Till Mobley after the film, Medgar Evans after the film, like after the events depicted in the film, um, reading more about the film doesn't really get into the impact that this had on the civil rights movement, but, Many people credit this as the start of the mass protests uh, of the 1960s. And so I think just more information is always good. Yeah. Like you mentioned too, digging, deep diving into the actual story of Oppenheimer after watching Oppenheimer um, or even looking at what other people have to say about it. So like reading in the case of Oppenheimer, you know, reading what the Navajo have to say about the film now, considering that um, their people were displaced um, 
during the creation and testing of the bomb and continue to suffer the impacts of that to their health. Looking at what Asian folks have to say about this, particularly in Japan, I think it's just important to like hear from folks who, especially if what's depicted in the film is not your perspective <laughs> or you weren't impacted and your ancestors weren't impacted by what this is depicting, just getting more voices is always a good thing. Yeah. And, and knowing if you're, if a filmmaker or a studio is putting out a film that is based on a, on true events or is a biopic about a person educating yourself about where is this coming from and how do people feel about it? I mean, we kind of hinted at the, Bradley Cooper movie Maestro that's coming out that is being on one corner revered and is one of the most anticipated movies of the year, but it is rife with controversy right now based around the real life implications of the people playing the real life people in this biopic. So yeah, educate yourself and learn more about the people behind the biopics and in front of the biopics. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. You can follow us and sign to our DMs on Instagram and at threads at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Usernames are in the show notes. We'd absolutely love you forever if you'd share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. And that's going to do it for these real smooth cha-chaers this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.